0: We will hear argument first this morning in case nineteen four sixteen, Nestle USA versus Doe, and the consolidated case. Mr. Cottiel.
1: Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. The alien tort statute has been around since the earliest days of our nation, and yet this court has never accepted the type of claim that the plaintiffs bring here. The claim plaintiffs bring alleges something horrific that locators in Mali sold them as children to Ivorian farms where overseers forced them to work. The defendants are not the locators, not the overseers, and not the farms. Instead, they are two U.S. corporations, Nestle USA and Cargill. The plaintiffs do not allege that these two owned or operated any farms, and they do not allege that the companies bought anything from farms that use child labor. Instead, the companies are an afterthought, A few of 101 paragraphs in their complaint, they claim the companies made decisions in the U.S. and that they had knowledge of child slavery. This lawsuit fails for two independent reasons. First, it's extraterritorial. You've said when a statute gives no clear indication of an extraterritorial application, it has none. Here, the plaintiffs haven't alleged any domestic injury or even that they've been to the U.S. History in this court's cases make clear that the ATS's focus is the injury or principal wrongdoing from a tort. Here, that occurred halfway across the globe. And second, the ATS is about natural persons. Jesner recognized there is no specific, universal, and obligatory international law norm of corporate liability. That fully applies to domestic corporations. It's not enough, as the Jesner plurality said, to show, quote, liability might be permissible under international law in some circumstances. Rather, it must be to use Sosa's language, quote, accepted by the civilized world and defined with a specificity comparable to the features of the 18th century paradigm. These are some of the most fraught decisions government makes. To say Congress in 1789 made them is to read many difficult policy choices into vague statutory text. This court is generally warned against doing that, and specifically with the ATS, every single
0: time. Uh, Mr. um uh, in this case, uh, no foreign country has objected to the United States hailing its own citizens into its own courts. And why should we be uh, cautious in terms of international relations uh, in such a case? Um, and what objection would foreign countries have to ensuring that uh, U.S. corporations follow customary international law.
1: So, Your Honor, first of all, I don't think that that's the relevant test, because Nabisco, what you said was even if international friction is, quote, not necessarily the result in every case, the potential for friction militates against recognizing foreign injury claims. And I think that's true generally. And then with respect to here... I do think that there's three different impacts on foreign policy that would be uh, that would that would occur if you were to recognize corporate liability in this case. One is in Jesner, you talked about the surrogacy problem with the injury nation. The, the, the plurality said that plaintiffs can still use corporations as surrogate defendants to challenge corporate governments, and said that's what was going on in Piabel. Well, that we can case, always
0: we can always address that uh, concern with uh, addressing aiding and abetting.
1: I agree that that's one way to do this, but I think this court in Jesner recognized that uh, that doing it that if you were to recognize corporate liability, you would in some circumstances get this. And in addition, the parent nation concern I think would apply just as well because it would be an end run around Jesner to permit foreign corporations like Nestle to be sued because of their domestic subs, like in this case, but not
0: others. And finally, thank you, um, uh, th- thank you, counsel, uh, Justice Thomas.
2: Uh, thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, Mr. Scott. Yell um, uh, the on a slightly different matter. Uh, do you uh, agree with the D.C. Circuit and the Fourth Circuit that there is a universal norm on uh, aiding and abetting liability?
1: We do not, Your Honor. We think that uh, that if you were to reach that question. That, uh, for the reasons the solicitor general said, there is no such norm in Hamdan. And footnote 40, uh, you said you said something similar. The domestic precedents, like Central Bank, I think, are clear on this. But I think our most important point, Justice Thomas, is that here aiding and abetting would translate to aiding and amorphous in this particular case because there's two axes here. One is extraterritoriality, which is already blinking red here because there is no U.S. injury or principal wrong. And now the plaintiffs want to add this ambiguous concept of aiding and abetting, and you'd be left with an extremely broad statute with no congressional analog whatsoever if you were to accept their interpretation.
2: Uh, the, uh, what about uh, the petition? The uh, respondents here say that even though there uh, may not be uh, an, uh uh, international norm or universal norm on corporate liability that that's different in the case of uh, slavery. Slavery. Uh, what's your response to uh, that?
1: Well, well. First of all, Your Honor, I think that the norm that they're asserting is not child slavery, but aiding and abetting child slavery, and they failed their own test. They have not a single case that says there is such a norm of aiding and abetting that. And I think this court has recognized that the test is a more general one. It's not specific norm by norm, but as Jesner and as the language that you joined in Jesner indicates, it's a much more general test of, is there a universal, specific, and obligatory norm? And here there isn't. The only evidence that they can even point to about child slavery in particular is one source, a 1930 Liberia report that says, although government officials use their authority to force labor, there's no evidence that the only corporation in the country did so. That doesn't come close to meeting their burden, that high bar that you and the rest of the court have talked about. You have to proceed with great caution. It's really their severe burden to produce evidence showing some sort of norm here, and they haven't. And so, Justice, come-
0: and Justice Breyer?
3: Um, let me go back to the corporate liability. Uh, one of the three incidents that led to the statute, I take it, was the Marbois Affair of 1784, and there was a French adventurer who assaulted the Secretary of the French Legion in Philadelphia, and there was no legal remedy for the assault. Now, that's so, isn't it? Uh, But this statute was designed in part to give a remedy. Well, suppose instead of, I think Mr. Marble, I'm not certain... which which of the parties he is, but instead of him going up and hitting the French secretary, uh, he had been the president of a corporation, and they all sat around and said, I have a great idea. Let's hit the French secretary. So they passed a resolution and went out and hit the French secretary. Why should that make a difference?
1: So, Justice Breyer, three things. First, I think your example points to the, ex- the separate argument about extraterritoriality, and I just want to make clear that they are distinct. Marbois and the other incident really underscore that this is about injury in the United States, which you don't have here.
3: Well, that's, that's true, but I'm not asking about I that. I'm abstracting from that, and just speaking okay. of, I don't see why exempt all corporations, including okay. domestic corporations, but from this
4: Right, but Your Honor, the
1: difference is in Merboire, under your hypothetical, there very well would be a remedy against the individual perpetrators, and that's exactly what international law requires time and again. You don't go after the corporation, but you absolutely have a remedy. We're not here seeking any sort of corporate impunity. We're just saying you have to go after the individual unless the statute and Congress makes a different choice, and most notably, Justice Breyer, in the TVPA, which is the most closely analogous statute. It is an ATS cause of action. No, but Congress I'm asking you really, what's life.
3: the reason why, if everything had been done in Marbois by a corporation, uh, why would you want to make the corporation immune from the statute
1: for, for two reasons, one, because there's already a separate remedy of going after the individuals. And second, because corporate liability, as Congress recognized in the TVPA, has any number of other difficulties, such as mens rea. Uh, this court in Jesner cited Molesco for saying that if you go after corporations and imbue them with liability, then people don't go after individual wrongdoers. And as a matter of deterrence, you might want to go after
5: them. Well, the Thank way, you, counsel. Uh, will...
0: Justice uh, Justice Alito.
5: Uh, Mr. Katyal, many of your arguments lead to results that are pretty hard to take. So suppose a U.S. corporation makes a big show of supporting every cause du jour, but then surreptitiously hires agents in Africa to kidnap children and keep them in bondage on a plantation so that the corporation can buy cocoa or coffee or some other agricultural product at bargain prices. You would say that the victims who couldn't possibly get any recovery in the courts of the country where they had been held should be thrown out of court in the United States where this corporation is headquartered and does business? So, Justice
1: Alito, I have three buckets of answers to this, and this is really the heart of the case in many ways, so I'll try to briefly outline them and then hope to detail them. So, the first is that that hypothetical is, of course, very far removed from the facts of this case, where they allege minimal U.S. conduct, not some sort of operation run from the United States. Second, I don't think your hypothetical states a violation of the alien tort statute because there is no domestic injury. But third and most importantly, your hypothetical does violate other statutes. As you said and the court said in Jesner, the ATS quote will seldom be the only way to hold perpetrators liable. And in your hypothetical, there are five different mechanisms that would prevent any abuse. First is foreign law the law of the ivory coast there are already criminal sanctions there and the state department and department of labor says those are being used and indeed when congress makes statutes extraterritorial like the TVPA they require exhaustion of those foreign remedies first before one can sue in the united states Second, there's sometimes specific liability under specific statutes, like the Genocide Convention. In your hypothetical, it might violate the extraterritorial criminal forced labor bar in 18 U.S.C. 1581 to 94. Third, you can bar goods from entering the United States under 19 U.S.C. 1307, and indeed the plaintiff's attorneys are doing that against the defendants right now. Fourth... Sometimes there's U.S. liability if an individual acts as a principal. And lastly, if there's any doubt about this, Congress can specify a specific remedy, an alternative. They pass extraterritorial laws all the time. And indeed, if the violation is so clear of international law and the laws of nations, I would suspect that would be easy. But I think implicitly... Justice uh, Sotomayor. Sotomayor. Yeah,
5: my time is up. Justice Sotomayor.
6: Council, as I listen to you, I, and your answers to Justice Alito's questions, it seems to me that his hypothetical all pointed to the fact that the aiding and abetting by the corporation happened in the United States. That, that's a serious question here about whether there were enough allegations that the acts of this corporation Uh, had a sufficient tie to the United States. I put that argument aside. But we know that um, under the ATS, the first Congress wanted the ATS to cover piracy. We also know that those who provided assistance to pirates were themselves um, held liable, whether they committed it on land or the sea, um, as aiders and abettors. And it boggles my mind to think that um, the aiding and abetting had to have happened on the sea and not on the land because the first uh, the 1799 imposed criminal liability for wherever the assistance occurred. And so my difficulty is in understanding your answer why it is that the ATS would not have seen aiding and abetting as its own form of criminal liability, and the issue being whether there were enough ties to the jurisdiction in which it occurred. I take, I'm not, I don't need an answer from you that says to me um, there wasn't enough here. I need an answer that says why wouldn't the framers have seen aiding and abetting in this way.
1: So, Justice of the Mayor, we certainly don't think that the complaint does say anything like what they claim at the red brief at page 5. There's a huge delta between the two. I just Go said to you, protection. I know
6: that there's but, a question but, about the allegation. Right. Go so, to the substance but of but the then issue.
1: With, with respect to the law, first of all, I think piracy, as the court recognized in Kia Bell at 121, is a category unto itself because the high seas are jurisdictionally unique and governed by no single sovereign. And the reason but why they're not I
6: jurisdictionally think, unique if it happens on land.
1: Well, but I think As that waiting
6: and abetting said if you assist in any way on the sea or on land, you're liable.
1: But I think the problem is when you translate anything from pirate. I think the court's been urged great caution and exercise in trying to draw too much from piracy because there isn't, of course another sovereign involved there, the way there is, for example, in this very case, where they're challenging the conduct in Ivory Coast and where there's a remedy in the foreign country. And the reason why I think Congress hasn't always recognized aiding and abetting, even with specific statutes that deal with it, is because it does lead to an amorphous form of liability. Justice Kagan? Justice Kagan?
7: Uh, Mr. Kakyo, is child slavery not uh, aiding and abetting it, but the offense itself, Is that a violation of a specific, universal, and obligatory norm?
1: We're we're not. Yes, I think we're not challenging that here. It's just the Okay, so. If
7: that's right, could a former child slave bring a suit against an individual slaveholder under the ATS?
1: So, if it were, if it weren't extraterritorial and it wasn't a corporate, yeah, no
7: problem. Extraterritorial, no problem. Aiding and abetting, just a straight suit. Uh, Correct. Okay. And could this uh, same former child slave, under the same circumstances, bring a suit against ten slaveholders?
1: Uh, You know, if they if they met the you know the requirements under the the law, yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, if they if there was possibility, okay. So, if if
7: you could bring a suit against ten slaveholders, when those ten slaveholders form a corporation, why can't you bring a suit against the corporation?
1: Because the corporation requires an individual form of liability under inter- a norm of specific norm of, of uh, under international law, which doesn't exist here. I think Sosa. I, I, I of- guess what
7: I'm asking is, like, what sense does this make? This goes back to Justice Breyer's question. What sense does this make? You have a suit against ten slaveholders. Ten slaveholders uh, uh, decide to form a corporation specifically to uh, remove liability from themselves, and now you're saying you can't sue the corporation?
1: Justice Kagan, I think that's exactly the question you and others repeatedly asked in Jesner and the court found no foreign court liability because of these policy risks. I'm just asking for a reason.
7: Right, Mr. and Coggio. the reason,
1: I think there are two different reasons. One is that when you, the site to Molesco from Jesner shows, when you go after individuals, you often can go after the, the, the true wrongdoers. Once you go after the corporate form, you get bogged down with questions of mens rea in a collective enterprise, which there's is... There's an amicus
7: difficult. brief, miss, sorry to interrupt Mr. Coggiel, there's an amicus brief, uh, by Professor Hathaway. That details the long history of imposing liability on slave ships. Those were not individuals, were they?
1: No, and Justice Kagan, we don't doubt that Congress can pass a statute to deal, to, to expand, to, to have corporate liability, but notably in the TVPA, they didn't do that, which is the most closely analogous statute. And you could ask the Thank same you, question God how does this make
0: sense? Justice Gorsuch?
4: Good morning, Mr. Kottschell. I'd actually like to pick up on, on this line of questioning. Um, I, I don't see anything in the language of the statute, and I don't believe you pointed anything that distinguishes between individuals and corporations. And the rationale, um, which Justice Breyer was alluding to, uh, for the ATS, I think that we've said many times, is to ensure that the United States uh, provides a mechanism for aliens to remedy wrongs that would otherwise be held against the United States itself and perhaps be uh uh, lawful causes for war against the United States, and on on, on those two lines, on on the language and on the r- rationale that this court has long adopted or recognized for the ATS, wh- why would we exempt uh, corporations? I, I understand your policy arguments.
1: Uh- Justice Gorsuch, the text refers to law of nations, and what you said, and what you said and others in others in cases is that that requires looking into whether there's a specific obligatory norm. And here there isn't one. The question is not are you exempting corporations, but rather are they included as a subject of the law of nations, which is the text of the ATS. And you talked about the rationale about not letting things go unremedied. But as I just said to Justice Kagan, there are remedies. You can go after the individuals, so you don't need to go after the corporations. And indeed, doing so imposes lots of liability. And it imposes lots of problems like mens rea and the like.
4: I don't believe you – okay, I I, I understand your responses there. I I don't believe you did get a chance to fully respond to Justice Kagan on our last point. I I would like an answer to that, and and that is – we do know one thing about the ATS is that it did permit in-REM jurisdiction uh, against things, in particular pirate ships. Uh, if in-REM jurisdiction was part of the ATS's contemplation, why wouldn't corporate liability, which then didn't exist, I mean, in, in serious, in, in widespread form, but why wouldn't the same concept?
1: For, for the exact reasons Briefly. that the court said in Jesner, Justice Gorsuch, which is, you know, the same argument was made there, and what the court said is that doesn't come close to meeting the kind of specific, universal, obligatory norm, and the court has to proceed with great caution because you're being asked to fashion a common law remedy, but, uh, thank you, which Mr. is not something.
8: Thank you, Justice Kavanaugh. Thank you, Chief Justice. Good morning, Mr. Cattell. Uh, the Alien Tort Statute was once an engine of uh, international human rights protection. Your position, however, would allow suits by aliens only against individuals, as you've said, and only for torts, international law recognized, that occurred in the United States. And Professor Coe's amicus brief on behalf of former government officials, for example, uh, says that your position would, quote, gut the statute, end quote. So why should we do that?
1: Well, I really feel like that's some overheated rhetoric. Uh, You know, after all, for 200-plus years, this statute's been around. There's not a successful example of a case like this ever, Justice Kavanaugh. All we're suggesting is to preserve the status quo, as it's always been. I understand there's some policy arguments for why you might want something else, but that's really something addressed to a different branch uh, of government, and for all the reasons the court said in Jesner, and you said in your dissent in Exxon versus Doe, recognizing corporate liability here or making it extraterritorial in the way that the plaintiffs want raises a host of really difficult, intricate policy questions, which are best left handled by the other branch, not by courts. I mean, this is an extraordinary thing they're asking the court to do in fashioning a common law remedy, and that's why every decision of this court says proceed with great caution. They have the highest of bars, and they haven't come close to meeting it. Thank you.
0: Justice Barrett?
9: Mr. Kyle, a lot of the questions you've been asked thus far focus on whether there's a specific universal and obligatory norm here, and that you know, as many of my colleagues have pointed out, raises some complications. Do you agree that this is a case that would be better resolved at SOSA Step 2?
1: We think, you know, for just as the judge in our plurality said, you know, the the evidence bleeds over from Step 1 to Step 2. We think the evidence for Step 1 on corporate liability is overwhelming, and we also think that the extraterritoriality, which is independent, is really pretty, is very, very clear because, as the court said in Morrison, there's always some U.S. conduct that can be pointed to in any case, and it'll be a craven watchdog if you can just use that to get out of the extraterritoriality bar. In this case is a perfect example of this. There's a very limited U.S. conduct that is alleged in the complaint, and yet they want to make the hugest of federal cases out of it.
9: Well, if we do resolve it at SOSA Step 2, When would we ever recognize a cause of action? Because, you know, most cases will raise the same, let's focus on the separation of powers prong. Most cases raise this question of the intricate policy questions that may be better left to Congress. I mean, we've been very restrained in the Bivens context about recognizing more causes of action. I mean, would this just kind of halt recognition of new causes of action altogether if we adopt your position?
1: No, Justice Barrett, we're not making the position, we're not taking the position that Justice Scalia said, uh, you know, it's obviously available to you, but we certainly think that Things outside of the Blackstone 3 that rise to the level of universality, to use the Breyer 4 formulation of Justice Kavanaugh, things like torture, genocide, crimes against humanity, and war crimes, for example, would, I think, all meet that SOSA step two, even though they're not part of the original Blackstone 3. Just don't think not that. if
9: a corporation was, was the perpetrator suit in any of those cases. Right, we don't think torture.
1: that, right, absolutely, it wouldn't be corporate liability. There's no international law norm that Meets their burden there, but you could go after them as individuals, and of course, Congress could pass a specific statute to deal with it, as they have sometimes, uh, the fair, you know, in like the TVPRA. In the
9: very Thank you, Mr. Start- Cacho, my time's expired.
1: A minute to wrap up, counsel. Thank you. The hard hypotheticals, I think, shouldn't obscure the far easier task before this court. Nestle, USA, and Cargill are not akin to Justice Alito's hypothetical of a direct enslaver or anything like that. The allegations in this complaint don't allege anything close to that level of wrongdoing. And when there are those allegations of such wrongdoing, there are five different paths apart from the ATS to protect human rights. And this court has always said great caution has to be exercised when recognizing a new cause of action, even in the face of hard facts. And our concern is that without such great caution, further complaints like this will proliferate and go on for decades with harm to our foreign policy, separation of powers, and other policy objectives. This court's been clear that the bar against extraterritoriality is a high one, and the allegations in this complaint and other ATS suits don't come
0: close to meeting it. Thank you, counsel. Mr. Gannon.
10: Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. The United States condemns child slavery and trafficking. Congress has expressly provided for criminal and civil liability for forced labor in certain circumstances, and the federal government has specifically supported efforts to eliminate the worst forms of child labor at cocoa farms in Cote d'Ivoire. But this court should not extend the reach of the Alien Tort Statute to encompass respondents' claims in this case for two principal reasons. First, the ATS does not authorize liability for domestic corporations for the same reasons that the majority and the plurality in Jesner found that foreign corporations are not liable. As the Jesner majority said, a decision to extend liability from natural persons to corporations must be made by Congress rather than the judiciary. And second, the aiding and abetting conduct alleged against defendants does not overcome the bar against extraterritorial application of the ATS.
0: Uh, counsel, I want to ask you the same question I asked uh, Mr. katiel um, We don't have objections from foreign countries uh, in this case. Uh, as far as we can tell, uh, they're perfectly comfortable having uh, uh, U.S. Uh, uh, citizens, U.S. corporations hailed into their and U.S. courts, uh, what should we make of that? And doesn't that suggest we ought to be a little more, a a little less cautious about uh, finding a cause of action here?
10: Well, in general, you've recognized correctly, I think, that you should be cautious about extending the cause of action. In previous cases, you've recognized that this is a question about whether there is a general threat posed by these types of cases and whether or not there's a threat posed by this specific case, cases against domestic corporations, can indeed be used as proxy challenges to foreign governments or to foreign parent or subsidiary corporations. And the United States has raised specific foreign policy concerns in cases involving U.S. corporations, including Doe against Exxon, Kulimani and American Isuzu, other cases. Um, But even in this case, the allegations are somewhat inchoate, even though the case is 15 years old. But there are ways, as Mr. Catchall pointed out, that this case could still threaten foreign affairs interests if it comes to fruition. Counsel,
0: if, if a United States corporation sent domestic employees to the Ivory Coast for the express purpose of setting up a cocoa farm, uh, that uses child slavery, would that conduct, uh, touch and concern the United States as we use those terms in Kyobol? Well,
10: I think that it, it depends on how much conduct happens in the United States and how much conduct happens overseas? We think that uh, the court has clarified that the way Kiobel is talking about that is whether the whether the conduct touches the territory of the United States, and we think that it's the conduct in question, not the not the citizenship of the parties.
2: Thank you, and,
0: counsel, uh, Justice Thomas. Uh,
2: thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, um, counsel. The um, I'm intrigued by my colleagues' questions on the corporate form. And, um, the, uh, but, and I seem to remember that, uh, in the past, the government has argued, uh, that the corporate form shouldn't make that difference as, uh, the difference in a case. And that's certainly not quite the argument or maybe even opposite argument that you're making now. Uh, I'd like you to, if you can, to respond to some of the concerns raised by my colleagues uh, with respect to the corporate form and to uh, at least explain or correct me if I'm wrong about your prior positions, the government's prior positions, as to the uh, coverage of the uh,
10: corporate form. Well, Justice Thomas, we did previously not urge the court to adopt a categorical rule eliminating corporate liability under the ATS, but uh, we're trying to be consistent with the court's precedence here, and Jesner rejected key parts of our argument there and key parts of our reasoning, and it reinforced a connection between the ATS caution that the court should have about recognizing new forms of liability and uh, extensions of liability and Mm Other areas, such as Vivens, it reinforced that connection in Hernandez, and we've consistently opposed corporate liability in the context of Vivens. and under that rubric, we think that the same answer applies here. And we, the question that the court is asking is whether there is reason to doubt whether Congress would want this damages remedy to be available for artificial persons. And we know that there are times when Congress makes that decision. It did so in the Torture Victim Protection Act. This court did so in Malesko. And now that Jesner has made foreign corporations not liable, it would be especially incongruous to discriminate on the basis of the defendant's nationality in the corporate context, because we know that that's not happening in the context of natural persons. The Marbois incident that Justice Breyer brought up has been discussed by Sosa and Kiabel, And in both cases, the court assumed that both the Frenchman and the New York constable who assaulted an ambassador in the United States would be liable. So if both foreign and U.S. natural persons are liable, we think that it, Congress should be the one that makes the decision that U.S. corporations would be discriminated against in a way that
3: foreign corporations are not. Thank you.
0: Justice Breyer?
3: I'd like to hear, if you would, uh, the government's answer to the same question that I think Justice Ta- everybody's been asking. Uh, use... Uh, Justice Kagan's example, if you want, or my example, uh, what's new about suing corporations? Uh, when I looked it up once, there were 180 ATS lawsuits against corporations. Most of them lost, but on other grounds. So why not sue a domestic corporation? You can't sue the individual because, in my hypothetical, the individuals have all moved to Lithuania. All you have is the corporate assets in the bank and minutes that prove it was a corporate decision. Uh, what's new about it? Why is it creating a form of action? What's the reason it shouldn't be there? I mean, uh, I, I don't see... Is it a different rule again for partnerships? A different rule again for, I don't know, limited liability companies? Or I mean, there are many forms of doing business. Why?
10: Well, we think that in Jesner and in Molesco the court recognized that extending liability to a corporate a corporation is a market extension of what Well you
3: missed my question unless you're going to answer it there what's extending it as it's i said there have been there are suits abroad i think i've seen citations to them and suits many tens, hundreds perhaps 200 180 brought against corporations under the ATS
10: Yes, but many of those suits um, now need to be thrown out under Jesner because they were foreign corporations. Yeah, yeah. And Malesko demonstrated that Merely having an underlying form of civil liability for individuals doesn't necessarily mean that it should be extended to corporations. And you're right. There may be a background rule that corporations are generally liable for the torts of their agents. Um, But we're not looking at this at SOSA Step 1. We think this is controlled by SOSA Step 2. And Congress has used two different models. They've used the Torture Victim Protection Act where they ruled out all artificial persons. Only natural persons can be sued. So that takes care of all your questions about corporations or limited liability companies or partnerships or anything else. Only natural persons can be sued under the Torture Victim Protection Act for something that everybody understands is a violation of the law of nations. Now, Congress did take a different route in the Trafficking Victims Protection Act where they ultimately recognized a civil remedy, but it departs from the ATS in multiple ways. It didn't make the civil provision retroactive. It doesn't discriminate between a U.S. corporation and a foreign corporation found in the United States. It's arguably extraterritorial at Morrison Step 1 in a way that the ATS is not. And it provides a specific cause of action with details that are tailored to the particular violations at issue.
5: Justice so, Alito? Uh, um, are you aware of ATS suits based on conduct that occurred in the United States why would someone bring such a claim
10: well if the I think that the canonical example would have been something like the Marbois incident. If the only cause of action was something that needed to be brought under the law of nations, then the ATS would have provided
5: jurisdiction for that yeah that, I mean that was that was necessary under domestic law as it existed at the time, but under current circumstances. Uh, have there been ATS suits based on conduct in the United States? It,
10: it, I, I'm not aware of suits that are that are entirely U.S. based, Justice Alito.
5: Won't your arguments about aiding and abetting and extraterritoriality all lead to essentially the same result as holding that a domestic corporation cannot be? sued under the ATS. Corporations always act through natural persons. So if a corporation can't aid in and abet, it, there, there will be only a sliver of activity uh, where they could be responsible under respondeat superior. Isn't that true? Well, I think...
10: Whether or not the court recognizes aiding in the vetting liability, there will be a separate question about whether responde superior type of liability should apply. Um, I think SOSA has, and in other cases the court has suggested that there could be other limits, and obviously Congress knows how to impose those sorts of limits, and in the civil action it provided in 1595 um, for um for crimes associated with slavery and forced labor, it specifically extended that action to whoever knowingly benefits financially or receiving in anything of value um, from, from a venture that engaged in that underlying conduct. And so I think part of the question is going to be whether you recognize aiding and adding, abetting liability or whether you're going to require the corporation to commit the actual tort um, or its agents to commit the actual underlying Yeah, thank you.
0: Justice Sotomayor? Counsel,
6: I I think I'm reading your brief right, that you don't think there's an aiding and abetting liability at all under international law. But both Blackstone and the First Congress recognized that facilitating piracy was a crime. And this court reaffirmed that in 1798-5 in the Talbert case. Post-World War II, military tribunals held individuals liable for assisting the German government's war crimes. The international criminal tribunals for the former Yugoslavia and for Rwanda and the special court for Sierra Leone all have imposed aiding and abetting liability. So I'm having a very hard time accepting that if an individual aided and abetted in the United States, or anywhere else, that we couldn't hold that individual liable. Could you explain to me why, I'm going to set aside the corporate for a moment. Could you set aside for me why you think international law, there's not an international law against aiding and abetting something as heinous as child slavery?
10: We, we are not disputing the international law level of this analysis, Justice Sotomayor. Just as with the question about corporate liability, we think that this is something that the court, if it wants to reach the question, could do entirely at step two of SOSA. And so even assuming that there is a sufficiently uh, um, defined norm at international law at step one, the question is still going to be whether the court would recognize an extension like All right, now, now let
6: me tax. stop at SOSA step two. Um, so I, I don't know if I misread your brief or it's become more nuanced now, but however, your answer is more nuanced now. It doesn't make sense to me. It might make sense to me in accordance with our rule in Jesner that we shouldn't hold corporations liable, for foreign corporations liable for conduct that they conduct in foreign countries. I see all of the foreign and domestic uh, conflicts that could occur there. I do not see the same conflict with holding an American corporation liable for the acts for acts it commits here. Putting aside that um, the allegations and their sufficiency in this case taking the hypothetical that Justice uh, Alito set forth, where most of the conduct was um, aiding and abetting conduct occurred here, it just I do not understand why international law would not have seen that as proper exercise of our power to say that our domestic corporations cannot uh, aid and abet in the United States and be held liable under the ATS. Uh,
0: briefly, counsel? Yes,
10: briefly. Our reason is not one of international law. It is that under Central Bank of Denver, the court has recognized that when Congress recognizes primary civil liability, that doesn't incorporate the expansion associated with aiding and abet liability unless Congress separately provides for that.
0: Justice Kagan?
7: Uh, Mr. Gannon, one of the amicus briefs in this case uh, says that uh, many of the countries around the world with the strongest rule of law systems uh, do hold their own corporations civilly liable for the kinds of actions at issue here, and the amicus brief says that's true of the United Kingdom, France, Germany, Japan, Canada. Uh, Do you know of anything that suggests otherwise?
10: Well, I'm not sure about other countries, but I do think that one point is that they are doing that as a matter of domestic law, and not always with an analogy that is like the ATS. And here, the United States Congress has actually provided for liability, civil liability, for many violations of. I guess the, the point I'm law. making
7: here, Mr. Gannon, is you know the Chief Justice started out by saying that. Other countries have not objected here, and that's true, but one might make uh, a broader point that the first Congress enacted the ATS in response to its concern about uh, other nations being offended by our failure to remedy international law violations. And uh, one might ask why one would think that another country would be less offended by leaving a foreign victim without a remedy when that victim is injured by a U.S. corporation, rather than by um, a U.S. US individual. And indeed, uh, that most of the countries around the world with which we're usually associated as rule-of-law nations do not make that distinction.
10: One reason is because we don't think that civil liability under the ATS is the only way that Congress has to ensure that we are holding U.S. persons accountable for violations of human rights. Um, under the Torture Victim Protection Act, Congress didn't think that corporations needed to be held liable in order for us to effectuate our obligations to prevent torture. Uh, um, and similarly, uh, Congress has provided for other remedies besides the TV, the, besides the ATS. It has criminal consequences, the types of things that Justice Sotomayor was talking about for piracy, those were originally criminal cases. Thank you, Mr. Gannon.
8: Thank you. Justice Gorsuch?
4: I have no questions. Thank you, Chief.
8: Justice Kavanaugh? Uh, Thank you, Chief Justice, and uh, good morning, Mr. Gannon. Footnote 21 in SOSA instructs uh, the courts to pay attention or give serious weight to the executive branch's view of the case's impact on foreign policy. In your view, are you, does this case have an impact on foreign policy, or are you making a more general argument about the ATS?
10: We're primarily making a more general argument about the ATS under Step 2 of the SOSA analysis. Okay, so um, are
8: you making any footnote 21 argument at all about this particular case having an impact on foreign policy?
10: Not Specifically, we are saying that there are allegations in the complaint that if this case were ultimately brought to fruition, that like the other types of cases that have previously presented concerns, may well point up a particular foreign relations problem because uh, they implicate the actions of foreign officials potentially. And separately, we do say that there is a potential uh, interaction here between the allegations of liability here. And efforts that the executive branch, Congress, other governments are making in order to help solve and ameliorate the human rights situation in forced labor chains, that the Harkin Anglo Protocol, um, is used by plaintiffs here as evidence of liability rather than an instance where a U.S. corporation is, in, is engaging in good faith in efforts to try to ameliorate human rights abuses.
0: Thank you. Justice Barrett?
9: So I have a question about aiding and abetting liability and extraterritoriality. You say that the focus of uh, the tort should be the primary conduct, so here what was happening in Cote d'Ivoire, rather than the aiding and abetting which you characterize as secondary. But why should that be so? I mean, let's imagine you have um, a U.S. corporation or even a U.S. individual That is um, making plans to facilitate the use of child slaves. You know, making phone calls, sending money specifically for that purpose, writing emails to that effect. Why isn't that conduct that occurs in the United States something that touches and concerns? You know, or should be the focus of conduct, however you want to state the test.
10: Well, I think that there are two different ways of looking at that. We do think that the focus test requires us to look at the object of the statute solicitude, including the conduct that the statute seeks to regulate, and to the extent that the U.S. corporation, in your hypothetical, is going to engage in all of this conduct overseas, even though some planning activities happen in the United States, if the actual tort and the victims are happening and are located in Cote d'Ivoire, then we think that that's where the focus of the conduct associated with a. Uh, with the tort is and now if you just want to focus on the aiding and abetting allegations or just say we're only going to look at the at the, the conduct by the u.s corporation instead of the people on the ground who are engaging in the underlying tort we still think that the allegations in this case don't specifically state enough in order to um, state a claim that would not be extraterritorial
0: thank you a minute to wrap up mr gannon
10: Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Concerns that the political branches have not moved quickly enough to resolve forced labor problems in corporate supply chains in this industry or elsewhere are not a license for this court to expand tort liability under the ATS. Having already ruled out ATS liability for foreign corporations, the court should not adopt a different rule for U.S. corporations. The contrast between the Torture Victim Protection Act and the Trafficking Victims Protection Act show That is a policy choice that could go either way, and the decision should be made by Congress. And if the court reaches the question of extraterritoriality, then even assuming that aiding and abetting is actionable, the focus of any forced labor tort here was overseas. That's where the injury happened and where any substantial assistance was provided. So plaintiff's claims call for an impermissibly extraterritorial application of the ATS. We urge
11: the court to reverse.
0: Thank you, counsel. Uh, Mr. Hoffman?
11: Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. The first Congress in the Alien Tort Statute provided a federal forum for foreign citizens to bring cases for law of nations violations without limitation as to defendants or theories of tort liability. Plaintiffs are former child slaves seeking compensation from two U.S. corporations, which maintain a system of child slavery and forced labor, in their Ivory Coast supply chain as a matter of corporate policy to gain a competitive advantage in the U.S. market. The international norms prohibiting child slavery and forced labor are indisputably specific, universal, and obligatory. The norms apply directly to private parties, including corporations. Unlike Kiobol and Jessner, this case does not seek to assert U.S. jurisdiction over foreign corporations for actions against other foreign citizens they took on foreign soil. This case alleges violations of long-established norms prohibiting child slavery and forced labor by U.S. corporations from the United States. The founders were particularly concerned about actions of U.S. citizens that might lead to foreign entanglements, and their response was to provide for a federal judicial forum to resolve such disputes based on the rule of law. The recent discovery of legal opinions written by Thomas Jefferson and Edmund Randolph in the 1790s make it clear that the ATS applied when U.S. citizens violated the law of nations on foreign soil and that the ATS's broad language applied to violations beyond the Blackstone norms without any need for further congressional action. These claims fit comfortably within the text, history, and purpose of the ATS, and this court's holding in SOSA, and it should be allowed to proceed.
0: Uh, counsel, uh, this case, of course, involves um, uh, United States citizens and uh, United States courts, but in the context of that action, uh, much of the focus is going to be on uh, conduct uh, overseas, and uh, those responsible for that uh, can be brought into court either as witnesses or uh, for aiding and abetting. Uh, so why doesn't this type of action present the same uh, international relations concerns that we've noted uh, in in the prior cases in this area?
11: Well, the, this, this case is not different in many respects from any transnational litigation. Um, the there certainly have been no problem with discovery and other matters in most of these cases that have gone to discovery. Um, The Ivory Coast has not objected to the case at any point, hasn't said anything about it. I think uh, Mr. Gannon has said that the United States has no particular objection about this particular case on foreign policy grounds uh, within the footnote 21 uh, context or others. Um, So, there really is no evidence that that's true. Moreover, Congress already decided in the Trafficking Victim Protection Act that forced labor and child slavery, and or slavery generally, in supply chains, um, is something for which damage remedies are appropriate. And and obviously, the Congress doesn't think that those issues present any any of those problems. The
0: the. Uh TVPRA uh, th- that you just mentioned, I think, uh, is is pertinent here. Congress is addressing the sort of questions that you would have uh, uh, the court resolve uh, as a matter of, I suppose, federal uh, common law. And uh, doesn't what Congress did in the TVPRA suggest that they are cognizant of these questions? They are active in the area. And uh, uh, it's it's time for the court to get out of the unusual situation where it's it's making rather than just uh, interpreting law.
11: Well, our, our response to that, Mr. Chief Justice, is that our case uh, arose at least for these six former child slaves at a time when the TVPRA was not uh, deemed to be explicitly extraterritorial. So, and so, so going said,
0: uh, well then, then going forward. Uh, in other words, uh, has, has Congress sort of take, taken the ball now going going forward, whatever the precise consequence may be in your it, litigation?
11: It, it is certainly true that the TVPRA is broader than the ATS claims that we are making in this case and that it is, seems very likely that any case from 2008 on would use the, the Trafficking Victim Protection Act rather than the ATS in making these kinds of claims. So our case is really an exceptional case that arises before that. And I think that the, the TVPRA answers the SOSA Step 2 problems that have been raised by the defendants and by um, by the United States in its submission. Today.
0: Thank you, Counsel. Uh, Justice Thomas? Uh, thank you, Mr. Chief Justice.
2: Uh, but the but the TVPA uh, seems to suggest that um, Congress does not see the uh, ATS the way you do it. Obviously, there you don't have corporate liability and you don't have aiding and abetting liability. So why shouldn't we take that as uh, an indication that Congress uh, saw limitations on, on the uh, ATS uh, jurisdiction?
11: Well, for one, Congress made it very clear when it passed the TVPA that it was complementary to the Alien Tort Statute and was not meant to displace it in any way. Um, And the language of the TVPA is different from the ATS, both in terms of its language, its history, and its purpose. Um, It's not clear that that aiding and abetting is not available under the TVPA, but, but this court certainly decided in Mohammed that um corporate liability is not available but the court has said that it looks to the most analogous statute and what we contend is that the trafficking victim protection act which deals specifically with forced labor and slavery in supply chains is the most analogous and so whatever congress thought about corporate liability for claims of torture or extrajudicial execution um Congress has made it very clear that they believe that there should be corporate liability when it comes to knowingly benefiting from um, forced labor and slavery in, in the supply chain.
2: Uh, you, you, it's, uh, just as a matter of curiosity, you bring this under the ATS, but could you have brought the same cause of action or a similar cause of action under uh, different provisions or a different law? Yes. uh, I'm I'm just thinking whether or not this could have been in diversity or something else.
11: I I think that this particular case, in the way that it was originally framed, could not have been brought under diversity jurisdiction because it it included both citizens and Hmm. non-citizens on the other side. So diversity was not available, uh, but, but the ATS directly applied yeah uh, terms
2: uh, on separate matter, there seems to be some suggestion uh, in the uh, arguments uh the and some of the other arguments that there's um, no new even though there is no universal norm for um, uh, aiding and abetting in the um, civil context it may well be uh, in the uh, criminal context uh, what's your uh reaction to that?
11: Well, I think, first of all, uh, our position is that aiding and abetting or accessory liability and tort was widely available at the time yeah. it was passed. But, but on the international level, it is our position that the international community has come up with specific universal and obligatory norms with respect to aiding and abetting serious violations of international um, human rights law, which would include these norms, um, for sure. And in fact, that's all the circuits that have um, decided this question have found that there is aiding and abetting liability in ATS claims. They have differed sometimes about the standards, sometimes adding requirements that don't appear to be in the customary international law norm. Um, but they all have recognized that, there's, that, there are aiding, that there is aiding and abetting under international law.
0: Thank you. Justice Breyer?
3: i like your views on the following. I assume that uh, there is corporate liability for domestic corporations. Assume that there is aiding and abetting liability. Now, what counts as aiding and abetting for purposes of this statute? When I read through your complaint, it seemed to me that all or virtually all of your complaints amount to doing business with these people. They help pay for the farms and uh, that's about it, uh, and they knowingly do it. Well, unfortunately, child labor, it's terrible, but it exists throughout the world in many, many places, and if we take this as the norm, particularly when Congress is now working in the area, that will mean throughout the world this is the norm, and I don't know, but I have concern that treating this allegation, the six that you make here, as aiding and abetting falling within that term for purposes of this statute. If other nations do the same, and we do the same, could have very, very significant effects. I'm just saying I'm worried about that. And I, I want you to explain to me how this should work.
11: Well, Your Honor, we are not taking the position that basically um, purchasing cocoa beans is enough to satisfy eating and bedding. Um, our position is that what is really going on here is that these corporations have set up a supply chain where they know where cocoa beans are being made by means of child slave labor and forced labor. Um, they know that that's where the cheap beans come from. They have used things like financing and payment. Yes, that
3: sounds like a business, a business that does business blinking their eyes or open eyes with farmers and others throughout the world who use child labor. But but in this case, do we want a judge to say you can't
11: do that anymore? What what we're saying is that um, a court should decide based on um, the international principles of aiding and abetting, whether um, the, the, these corporate defendants have crossed the line between merely doing business and facilitating that system. The information filed by Tony Ciacalone and the small and mid sized stock companies indicate exactly how companies do business facilitating child slave labor in the Ivory Coast. It can be done. There are requirements by, by our allies in Europe about how it should be done. Um, what would be doing in not um, imposing aiding and abetting liability for this high-level kind of corporate decision-making and policy um, would give these companies an unfair competitive advantage on child labor? It violates these fundamental norms in ways that, that our allies and others are, are trying to eliminate.
3: Thank you.
5: Justice Alito? Uh, Mr. Hoffman, I'm interested in what your complaint alleges about the mens rea of these particular defendants regarding forced child labor. You've had 15 years now to refine your complaint, and I assume you've chosen your words with care. In paragraph 50 on page 319 of the Joint Appendix, you allege that, quote, defendants in general not only purchased cocoa from farms and or farm cooperatives which they knew or should have known relied on forced child labor. Even putting aside the question of which defendants you're referring to, you don't even allege that they actually knew about forced child labor. Uh, Do you go further any place in the complaint? And if not, uh, is should have known, which is basically recklessness, enough for aiding and abetting liability under either international law or U.S. law.
11: Uh, Your Honor, I don't think that should have known um, would would satisfy, but knowledge uh, would satisfy the international standards for aiding and abetting. We do we do um, contend that these defense knew exactly what they were doing, and that's yeah. where
5: where do you where do I look in the complaint to find that?
11: Well, Your Honor, we we have alleged knowledge. The Ninth Circuit interpreted our complaint as satisfying both knowledge and purpose standard in terms of the um, um, writing and abetting allegations. Yeah,
5: well, I, I read the complaint. Where do I find an allegation of knowledge? Uh,
11: sorry, Your Honor, I'm sorry to use your time this way. Um, You know, we have, I, I think when you, if you take the allegations, and I don't have a specific um, um, paragraph, but what, what we have alleged is that these defendants are intimately involved in the, the cocoa growing area and that they're not, they have knowledge because of the reports that have been issued, because of they, they, they send their own um, people to investigate. and and they filed reports back to the headquarters um, that they're intimately involved with what goes on in their supply chain. Um, So we have alleged knowledge, whether we should have known as superfluous, I think, to to the fact that we've uh, um, alleged that they actually know about
5: these things. Hey, this is an important point, uh, and this is something you have to allege even under notice pleading. And I assume you're really careful, you were careful about what you alleged because you don't want to incur Rule 11 liability. So after 15 years, is it too much to ask that you allege specifically that the the defendants involved, the defendants who are before us here, specifically knew that forced child labor was being used on the farms or farm cooperatives with which they did business? Is that too much
11: to ask? Oh, and, and, and we've we've been given an opportunity to, to amend our complaint as, as the circuit has given us that ability um, to lay this out. Um, we have more information actually since the second complaint, based on continuing investigation and trips to the region. And, and yes, we we can allege that they knew that they were involved with the farms in the region that supplied. That supplied uh, that involved child slave labor, including the, the, the six former child slaves who are plaintiffs in the case.
5: Thank you,
11: Justice Sotomayor.
6: Counsel, just so I understand, you believe that the aiding and abetting exists if they knew, simply if they knew that child labor was being used to produce the cocoa beans, and they bought the product.
11: That's not, that's not our position, Honor. Um,
6: All right. So our, our, knowledge that child labor was being used, you don't claim is enough. Um, your complaint, as I see it, alleges that there was some decision-making in the United States to buy these products from these kinds of farms. I presume that's knowing that they're child labor. Um, But I don't see an allegation other than sending representatives to look at the farms so that knowledge could be imputed that there's any other actual acts of aiding and abetting that you have alleged against the particular U.S. corporations that you're suing.
11: Well, our position is that these um, corporations from their Quarters have controlled every aspect of the supply chain. Um, but I
6: don't understand what control means.
11: Well, control they,
6: means- I, 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 have you shown that they directed a foreign corporation, even if it's a subsidiary? Well,
11: I think Hello. they've actually acted directly from corporate headquarters. They've people from corporate headquarters in terms of information on the ground, setting up cooperatives um, uh, If you were given
6: leave to amend you could actually show that they transmitted the money that they directly, I'm not talking about their subsidiaries that the American corporations actually directed the money
11: to go is that that these are controlled by the corporate defendants and that we would and we've been, we've been asked to get um, allegations, particularly separating out the foreign corporations that have to be dismissed after Jessner, to identify exactly what we contend these, um, these domestic corporations have done. And we think we do have enough information to, to link the decision-making and corporate policy in the, to um, obtaining these coca beans from foreign.
6: Council, you, you, you're you're equivocating on my question. It's not just a decision-making, because oh, we've yeah. often said that decision-making is not enough aiding and abetting, that you have to follow it with an affirmative act. Right. And yeah, that, but, that's I mean, what I'm trying to get out of this
11: with you. But the deal. So Can you just...
6: show that the affirmative act was in actually sending money to those yeah. places that they're the funders, direct funders of the farms, et cetera.
11: Yes. No. I mean, what we've said is there are exclusive um, marketing relationships that are uh, that are controlled by headquarters. That people are sent from headquarters. Money is sent from headquarters. Equipment is arranged from headquarters. The trainings are arranged for by headquarters. Our allegation is that these U.S. companies control the aspect, all the aspects of this supply chain that leads directly to farms that our plaintiffs were enslaved on and where many thousands of other children are enslaved.
6: Thank
0: you, Councilman.
11: Justice Kagan?
7: Uh, Mr. Hoffman, um, on the question of corporate domestic liability, uh, the government makes the argument that uh, Jesner changed everything. Uh, It originally um, uh, took the the same position that you're taking now on corporate domestic liability. It says that that position is now untenable, Uh, that once the court held that foreign corporations uh, uh, weren't liable, the court really can't hold that domestic corporations are. Um, what, What is your response to that?
11: Um, Well, well, first of all, I think that the the evidence that justified um, using SOSA Step 2 to eliminate liability against foreign corporations really doesn't exist with respect to domestic corporations sued under the ATS. And actually, Kessner and Kiobel are of a piece in a way. What what this court has said is that ATS jurisdiction should not be used to police the actions of foreign operations, um, particularly when they act primarily on foreign soil. Um, whereas this, our case is completely different in the sense that the United States has its own responsibility to police operations. That was the original plan that had in the ATS, that we were saying to the world, we will enforce the law of nations. And I think that the Jefferson and Randolph opinions recently underscore the fact that we made a commitment to the world that when our citizens violate law of nations, even if it's outside U.S. territory, that we will provide a forum for foreign citizens to do that. Um, both Kiobo and Jessner deal with completely different situations where there's minimal contact with the United States and where it's really the responsibility of other countries to police their own corporations. In Kiobo, for example, the Netherlands has has allowed for a case on behalf of the Kiebel plaintiffs against the same defendants for the same um, allegations. So the Netherlands is set up to police its own corporations. What we're saying is that the United States has that obligation according to the founder's original promise uh, under the Alien Torture.
7: You know, as you know, Desner uh, is, is a fractured decision, there's a majority in some places. Uh, only a plurality in other places. If you look at that decision, what do you think it tells us about the approach that we need to use to answer the question of domestic corporate liability for child slavery? I mean, what is controlling, do you think, with respect to um, uh, how we go about answering that question?
11: Um, I don't think that there is a controlling majority in Jessner about how to approach that question. The plurality does um, discuss the question of whether there needs to be a specific and universal and obligatory norm of corporate liability. Um, I think for the reasons that the Solicitor General's Office gave in the case and in Jessner, that corporate tort liability um, is is well-established and was understood, I think, to the founders and certainly has been a, a part of U.S. domestic common law tort liability from the beginning, as soon as there were corporations, and before that there were ships. Um, and so we think that that's not... That's basically what international law provides are the prohibitive norms, in this case child slavery and forced labor. But the means of forcing them Individual states, and in, in the ATS, our first Congress, the tort liability, using common law methods, was the way that our courts would enforce the law of nations. And, and there's no requirement um, that that be mandatory corporate liability. It's up to states, and many Thank states. Thank you, Mr. Hoffman. Thank Sir. you,
4: Justice Gorsuch. Good morning, Mr. Hoffman. I'd like to for put aside, for purposes of my question, the, the corporate versus individual nature of the defendant, and focus solely on the cause of action. And and here you're asking us to infer a new cause of action for aiding and abetting. And um, I I guess I want to understand why I should be creating new causes of action as a judge today. Um, We have abandoned federal common law in every other area after Erie, or at least we proclaim to do so. Um, and I'm not sure I understand why the ATS should be different, um, especially when Congress stands able and ready to create new causes of action, um, as the Chief Justice has pointed out, it's done elsewhere. That would be the appropriate, more appropriately placed to, to create new legislation, it would seem. And, um, in every respect, what you're asking us to do is a form of legislation, uh, and then finally, I throw into the mix Central Bank, which underscores that aiding and abetting liability is a different thing and that often uh, there are good reasons not to have aiding and abetting liability, even when there's primary liability. So whatever I think about the question, I have to at least acknowledge there are good arguments for a lawmaker to consider on both sides of that question. Which, again, takes me back to my question wondering whether I'm the right person to be making this pitch to rather than a legislator. Can you help me with that?
11: Sure, you are. Um, the, I think the the main answer is that um, this court in in SOSA decided that the original authorization uh, that the first Congress made to the courts to enforce the law of nations using common law methods um was still viable, notwithstanding Erie, and notwithstanding many of the arguments that um, that the defendants make in this case, uh, and that if there was a specific, universal, and obligatory norm of the same degree of definiteness and consensus as the um, the norms that applied in the 18th century, that it was appropriate for this court to recognize. Um, the ability to enforce those norms by tort liability in our courts. And, and basically, the, the norms about child slavery and forced labor are as, as quintessential so qualifying norms as could possibly be imagined. Now, with respect to aiding and abetting liability, um, for one, I think that if the court wants to reach that issue, I think it would benefit from full briefing and argument on that issue specifically um, because those were not exactly in the questions presented, but but our position on aiding and abetting liability is that, in fact, the founders understood aiding and abetting liability. There was aiding and abetting liability in British common law, that was received um, in our law. Uh, the Bradford opinion talks about um, U.S. defend U.S. nationals aiding and abetting French, uh, the French in terms of their attack on. Sierra Leone, um, the Talbot decision. Uh, I think is just Justice Sotomayor noticed. It uh, uh, deals with aiding and abetting liability. So it's not the, the, the idea in the Alien Tort Statute was to provide a remedy and reparations when U.S. citizens violated the rights of, of foreign citizens. And the, the first Congress was not looking to restrict the, the nature of liability. They would they would not want to exempt corporations and give them immunity. They would not want to limit the the decision to a place of injury. What they were looking to do was to... Mr. To Hoffman, I'm afraid
4: my, my time's expired. Thank I'm you sorry. very much. Thank you.
8: Justice Kavanaugh. Uh, thank you, Chief Justice, and good morning and welcome, Mr. Hoffman. Good morning. Uh, I have a different flavor of Justice Gorsuch's uh, broader question about Separation of powers, uh, and this case really is a case, I think, about the proper role of the judiciary as compared to the proper role of Congress here in fleshing out the Alien Tort Statute. As you know, Sosa and Jesner and other cases have said the court, the court, should not be out in front in fleshing out the cause of action here. Uh, didn't go, didn't reject it entirely, didn't take Justice Scalia's position, but shouldn't be out in front. And two sources in particular uh, the court has said to look to to constrain the cause of action to make sure, uh, as Justice Gorsuch said, we're not uh, creating it ourselves. And one is, of course, making sure the norm is sufficiently rooted in international law, as you know, And my concern on that is uh, the language of SOSA doesn't just talk about the norm, as you know, but footnote 20 specifically directs us to look uh, at the particular perpetrator being sued in the category of uh, perpetrator, whether it's a corporation or individual. And I've looked at this before, as you know, uh, and looked at it again, and I think it's hard to argue that, Corporate liability in international law is a specific, universal, and obligatory, uh, or specific and universal. Uh, foreign law is different. Justice Kagan rightly points that out. And there may be debatable policy reasons for uh, drawing the line between individual and corporate liability. But it's, it's hard to argue that, uh, it's there in international law. That's my concern in this case. It stems uh, on the question presented on corporate liability stems from footnote 20 in the content, as I see it, of international law. So I'll give you an opportunity to respond to that. Well, Your Honor, I
11: think that the, the, the question on, I think we would argue, on footnote 20 was addressed to the distinction between norms that applied directly to private parties, including corporations, versus norms that required some connection to state action. I think that the citations there um, make that fairly clear. I don't think it was saying that corporate liability had to be a specific universal and obligatory norm because that's really not the way the international system works. Many um, governments do impose corporate liability for violations of international law, for example in employment. that's
8: uh, I think that's a different question though, and that gets to justice kagan's point, which I think is a good one that foreign Foreign law does impose corporate liability, of course, as does u s law in many circumstances. but international law and the international tribunals have not seemed to do so
11: yeah it 's correct that in certain international tribunals for for reasons specific to those tribunals um, did not impose liability on corporations but the Alien Tort Statute is basically a tort statute. It's a civil tort statute, and I think the International Human Rights Amicus indicates that um, corporate liability is a general principle of law. It applies in all legal systems. Uh, it is applied in our legal system from the beginning. It applied in in Britain before we were a nation. Uh, in other words, corporate tort liability is the ord is the norm.
8: It's not the exception.
11: Well, except
8: uh, then the second constraint that the court has said to look to, of course, is Congress, and you don't see it in the things like the TVPA. You've responded to that, though, and my time's up, so I'll let let it go there. Thank you, Erin. Justice Barrett?
9: Counsel, in response to a question by Justice Kagan, you said that the ATS was a statement by the first Congress that we will enforce the law of nations and provide a forum for foreign citizens to do that. But, of course, the ATS also did it to protect the, uh, you know, the, the policy interests of the United States and to protect the United States from retaliation by other countries in circumstances in which it failed to provide such a forum. So we've talked a little bit about the foreign policy implications or lack thereof of our recognizing a cause of action against domestic corporations for violations of international law norms. But could you say a little bit about any foreign policy implications that might uh, be the result of our failing to recognize such a cause of action?
11: well i think that the, the, certainly the original idea and 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 this is reflected in the the jefferson and randolph opinions and in the bradford opinion with respect to the attack on sierra leone other countries um, did protest in those instances um, acts by us citizens in their territory that violated the law of nations and and that the idea of the ATS was to provide that forum so to avoid that kind of protest. It, it didn't require well, a protest. But would we,
9: I, I guess my question is, do you think that the United States would face such protest in this circumstance, in this suit?
11: Well, it hasn't. I mean, and for one thing, it's not clear whether there's a forum or there isn't a forum. So um, the Ivory Coast wouldn't have reason at this point to, to protest. Um, you know, it's not clear whether in today's world there would be protests of the same nature, uh, but it seems to me that the, 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 um, the purpose of the statute was to provide that kind of forum, and SOSA interpreted that to, to limit it in some respects to certain fundamental international human rights norms.
9: Well, let's return happen. to the question of the potential foreign policy um, implications of extending liability to domestic corporations in this circumstance. So Mr. Coyal was pointing out that domestic corporations often have relationships with foreign subsidiaries or parent corporations, and therefore that many of the same concerns that we identified in Jesner would be implicated by the recognition of liability in this context as well. So what do you have to say to that? Would recognizing... Um, Liability here against a domestic corporation with foreign uh, foreign relatives um, just permit an end run around Jesner.
11: I think that in this particular instance, um, Cargill and Nestle USA are in different circumstances. Uh, Cargill is, is obviously only a U.S. corporation and doesn't raise those issues. Um, the issue with Nestle, I think, if if it is in fact the case that Nestle. Switzerland, the parent, is actually the one controlling, and that we're wrong. I think that, in fact, under Jessner, probably there can't be a viable ATS claim against Nestle USA. That's not what we believe, but if, in fact, the facts turn out that way, then I think um, it probably is in conflict with Jessner.
9: Thank you.
0: Uh, Mr. Hoffman, you can take a few minutes to wrap up.
11: Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Um, uh, few international norms are as fundamental as the pro- prohibitions against child slavery and forced labor. Um, plaintiffs' claims satisfy every SOSA requirement and fit squarely within the text, history and purpose of the ATS. The ATS represents a commitment to enforce the law of nations in our courts, a commitment Congress has never withdrawn or restricted. And certainly not with respect to child slavery. Uh, this court should reaffirm that commitment and should allow these former child slaves to have okay. their day in court. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice.
0: Thank you, counsel. Uh, Mr. Katio, rebuttal?
1: Four points, Your Honor. First, Nestle and Cargill abhor child slavery. This case isn't about that, it's about whether this old statute applies extraterritorially and who can be sued. When asked by Justices Alito and Sotomayor, where in the complaint is there any knowledge of slavery by the defendants, my friend couldn't answer, zilch. This case is an easy one on extraterritoriality where there is no U.S. injury and little U.S. conduct. Accepting the complaint would create the craven watchdog problem of Morrison, indeed, a breathtaking kennel of problems, as my friend's opening line admitted that lawsuits, quote, without limitation on defendants or theories of tort liability. And even if aiding and abetting liability exists, Justice Otomayor, it doesn't get around extraterritoriality. Rather, its ambiguity highlights the problem, as Justice Breyer's worry to my friend shows. The ATS's focus is still the injury or principal wrongdoing. Otherwise, it's truly aiding in amorphousness. Second, my friend suggests our view guts human rights law, but ours was a law for at least the first 200 years with no practice of ATS liability. Indeed, Congress knows how to fashion specific remedies for the extreme hypotheticals and already has. I heard no answer from my friend to the five mechanisms to prevent abuse. Third, my friend's arguments never grapple with Justice Kavanaugh's point that in every case, that every case is said that this court shouldn't be out in front. It's his high burden under SOSA to convince you a specific universal norm exists. He doesn't. Fourth, and finally, for corporate liability, Justice Breyer, in your query, what's new? This court's majority, not the plurality, Justice Kagan and Jesner, said there are harms to separation of powers and hard policy choices about how to maximize deterrence, foreign investment, and foreign policy. Congress sometimes uses corporate liability and sometimes doesn't, like the TVPA. The queries today about how can we exempt corporations, it makes no sense, could be said about torture. But in the TVPA, Congress said there was no liability for corporations. The fact that there are two reasonable choices shows you should defer to Congress. Same with extraterritoriality. Sometimes Congress extends a statute that way, like genocide. Other times it doesn't. Nothing in the ATS says it reaches an injury halfway across the globe. And the new Jefferson and Randolph letters are about U.S. conduct, bringing people to the U.S. as slaves. And they're about alienage jurisdiction under Article 3. Neither says the ATS overcomes the extraterritoriality bar. Justice Breyer, you asked, do we want a judge deciding this? This thin and accusatory complaint And my friend's admission of just how open-ended and transformative his
6: liability would be answers that question.
0: Thank you, counsel. The case is submitted.